So 14 years ago, I went through a phase where I began to question everything about God, the Bible, everything I had been taught, the traditions, church. And I remember how it all began. I was sitting in a class at Oral Roberts University, and a professor began asking these questions. It was a theology class. And he began to ask us our thoughts about certain things that happened in the Bible, the early church, the history of the church. And I didn't have the answers to the questions. And then he began to hit me with so many little questions. And I got angry in the moment. And after class, I came up to the professor. I said, how is this supposed to build our faith? He said, if your faith can be broken by these questions, then you need to reconstruct what you've built your faith upon. And I remember in that moment, I began to go on this search, this hunt, this pursuit of what I was building my faith upon. Was it on a firm foundation? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that a builder who builds his house on the sand, when the storms come, it will collapse. But a builder who builds his house on the rock, it will be able to stand through the storms of life. I believe Jesus was talking about your faith. That if you build your faith on answered prayers, things going your way, understanding all of the scripture, the Dallas Cowboys winning all of their games. When you build your faith on circumstances turning out the way you hope and all of your expectations turning out to be the things you experience all the way you hope. At some point, you're going to be hit with a crisis, suffering, because Jesus never promised us a pain free life, a suffering free life. And when we build it on all these things. That's when it starts to come crashing down. For me, that's what began to happen. I found myself not wanting to go to church, not wanting to open my Bible, not wanting to pray, not sure if I could trust, not sure if I could even trust God or trust what my parents had spoken to me. And I went on a journey dealing with doubt. Now, I wouldn't be up here today if I hadn't come back around to this. You're like, are we listening to a heretic right now? This does have a happy ending for the story in my life. But before I come back to it, I want to leave some tension there. I want to leave some tension. What do you do when you start dealing with doubt about God, doubt about faith and the Bible and everything you've been taught? Right now in our current society as a church, we showed this on the Dear Church intro video, there are famous Christian authors, songwriters, leaders that are coming out saying, you know what, I'm done with God, I'm done with church, I'm done with Christianity, I don't believe it anymore. I've decided to go on my own hunt to figure out what I believe. And so what do you do? How do you handle doubt the right way? Because the reality is all of us at some point are going to face a little bit of doubt. And it's not about if you face doubt. It's about how you handle doubt that will either lead you to life-giving, robust, rich faith that leads to joy and hope and peace. Or if you handle doubt the wrong way, it will lead you down a path of continual confusion and continual questioning, questioning everything, suspicion, not being able to trust anyone or anything. And by the way, like this deconstruction movement that's going on, uh, by the way, deconstruction basically just means to question everything you've been taught and to try to pull apart everything you can to see what's left at the end, like burn the whole thing down and see what's left of your faith, your belief. Okay. But this has been going on from the very beginning of time. The very first deconstructionist was the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, right? Because God said, you should not eat from this tree and you should eat from this tree to Adam and Eve. And the serpent comes slithering in and says, 
did God really say? Begins to question God, begins to question God's word, begins to question God's commandments. Is that really how you should interpret the scripture? Is that really what God meant? Because guess what? The serpent's goal was to get them to open the door to sin. Now, this is where all of the darkness came in. God is not the author of cancer, divorce, abuse, rape, all of the problems we see in our world today, genocide. God did not create darkness and evil, but God gave us free will, the choice to choose whatever we want to do because a loving God, a good father, would not force us to do what he wants us to do, but would give us the power to choose. And so Eve listened to the questioning of the serpent and she convinced Adam and then the door was opened. And all kinds of things came in. And now, today, so many people blame God for all of their problems and say God is the author of the cancer. He's the author of sickness and all of these things. And God's getting, like, blamed for things that are absolutely not his fault. <laughs> and so today, I want to address how do you deal with doubt and not end up on a, on a path of the blame game and depression and discouragement? Because one guy in the Old Testament, he went down this path, and he went down a spiral of depression. His name was Solomon. He was probably one of the most famous deconstructionists of his time. He was the wisest king who ever lived. King Solomon began to question everything his father David taught him. The hymns, the temple, understanding God, the boundaries of not being able to do certain things. And so Solomon said, you know what? I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to give myself all the pleasures of the world. So Solomon married a thousand women. Can you imagine having a thousand wives? <laughs> And so Solomon is trying to be there for all 1,000 of his wives. And then he has hundreds of, like, this was not God's will. But Solomon wanted to do what he wanted to do. And Paul warned Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, beware. In the last days, there will be people who abandon their faith and they go after whatever they want. And they start defining what's true for them, what's good for them, and what's not good for them. Solomon was doing this in the Old Testament. And he gets to the point of complete confusion. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, he writes, meaningless, vanity, all of this is meaningless. Nothing in life makes sense, right? And here's the wisest guy in the world who is confused and depressed and he's isolated and he's angry. And he's saying, I tried pleasure. I pursued intellect. I studied books. I gave myself all the knowledge in the world. I went to the best universities and I pursued understanding all of it. And it's meaningless. He became so confused and so depressed. And it was only at the end of Ecclesiastes that he said, I found the conclusion. And the conclusion is this, to fear God and to obey his commandments. So he comes back to an understanding. But I look at a guy in the New Testament who was dealing with doubt. And, and I want to explore why he was dealing with doubt about God and about Jesus and about the whole thing. So if you have a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 11. Yeah, you can make some noise. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you where this message was birthed. Because it was really birthed from a place of compassion. I mean, tears, to be honest. This summer, I was talking with different friends. And, and I'm part of a text thread of pastors and worship leaders around the United States. And there's about 15 of us on this text message thread that will text back and forth things that we're walking through, things that we need prayer for. And one of the, the guys that's on there, he's a very famous person. Um, he's written a lot of songs and, and leads worship at a very well-known church. He, he said, pray for me. A lot of the people in my circle are going through what is called deconstruction. And so he began to explain it and talk about it. 
And then other pastors chimed in on the text thread. And they said, yeah, the same thing's happening at our church too. And it's not just young people. It's people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s that are having a faith transition. And they're redefining what they believe. And they're erasing hell. And they're erasing parts of the scripture they don't like or that they're uncomfortable with, that feels inconvenient, and they're picking a fast food spiritual diet. They're saying, you know, I'll take the burger, no lettuce, please, no tomatoes. Let's leave hell out. I want heaven. I want the blessings and the benefits, but no holiness. Please don't put any restrictions on me. And um, I believe in the New Testament, but let's get rid of the entire Old Testament. There's actually movements right now on the East Coast, the West Coast, in the Midwest that are deleting the Old Testament. Like, they're not just saying, you know, Genesis 1 through 10, it's just poetic. Let's not, like, Noah and all this stuff. Like, what? They're actually saying, let's get rid of the whole Old Testament. And there's people that are, there's actually a group called the Woke Church. They're called the Woke Church. I have 30 pages of notes. I'm going to try to get through three pages for you today. <laughs> but this, there is a lot on this whole thing that's going on here. But the Woke Church, they say, we are woke um, because... We finally figured out, finally discovered that the historicity of Christ, everything we've been taught from the Bible is no longer true. So now they're creating their own truth apart from the Bible. They're actually writing their own Bible and they're deleting what has lasted 2,000 years. My friends, this has lasted a lot longer than your doubts and your questions. If you're gonna, if you're gonna put your faith in something, put your faith in something that's outlasted and you say, well, Paul, there's flaws in here. I will say this, there are flawed people in here, but the story is not flawed. There are people who, yes, there, there is slavery in here, and God is not for slavery. And yes, there is genocide in here, and God is not the author of genocide. And yes, there is some very bad sexually immoral stuff in here, and all kinds of stuff that happens. But the story is about a good God who pursued people that were broken and flawed and messed up and he kept coming after him and he kept coming after him and he kept offering love and forgiveness and a second chance. And even when Israel continued to prostitute herself to other false gods and idols, God never gave up on Israel. And he's not gonna give up on you. And just like the story of the prodigal son, some of you in this room, You've wandered away from the house. Some of you, you have kids that have wandered away from the house who said, you know what, I'm done with it. I don't believe in it. I don't wanna be a part of it. They have all the reasons, and I'm gonna talk about the reasons why people deconvert, the reasons why people walk away from the faith. But let me just say this, right from the get-go, God will never stop loving you. Even when you are faithless, he is faithful. And this is a church we are never going to reject you because of your doubts or your questions or what you're struggling with. You can come as you are, but you better believe we're gonna bring you the truth and the love of God and the grace of God with the unadulterated truth of God spoken from a heart of love. I was in tears this summer. Tears for friends that are struggling with their faith. I stayed up through the night just trying to search how to understand, how to better talk to them about questions they're dealing with. Because this matters to me, y'all. Like, I don't wanna just be a, a happy Sunday church where people have a shallow, fragile faith and they can't hold on to their faith when a professor asks them questions or when they walk through a crisis or when their son 
is born with leukemia or, or when their father's diagnosed with cancer and their friend's mom survives it, but their dad dies of it. Like we've got to have a, a church that is strong in biblical literacy and a faith that understands how to weather through the storms of life that don't make sense. So Matthew chapter 11, watch this. Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples and he goes on to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And John the Baptist, who was in prison. Now let me stop right there. John the Baptist was not always in prison. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter three, he was the celebrity preacher. And he was the guy that everybody came to listen to and he preached a great sermon of repentance. And people would get saved and they'd get baptized. They would repent and they'd put their faith in God and they would go down to the Jordan River and John the Baptist was baptizing people. He was preaching. He was eating locusts and honey. He was living the good life. <laughs> Everything was going good for John the Baptist. And Jesus in Matthew chapter three shows up to one of John's church services. And John says, behold, the lamb of God, behold, the lamb of God. John had a revelation of who Jesus was in Matthew chapter three. That's the lamb of God. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And Jesus says, baptize me, John. And John baptizes Jesus. And then a voice from heaven speaks so clear that John hears this is my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. John has a great revelation of who Jesus is, the power of God, the presence of God. It all makes sense to him in Matthew chapter three. But eight chapters later, John's in a different place, not just in a different place physically. He's in a different place mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And so in verse two, he starts hearing about what God's been doing for everybody else. Have you ever been there before where you start hearing about what God's doing for everybody else? He's setting the captives free. He blessed your friends with a new house and a new car and their business is prospering and their marriage on Instagram looks perfect. And you're scrolling through those pictures. Perfect family. They had four kids. We had four miscarriages. And their mom's alive. She beat cancer. And you start looking at how God's helping everybody else, blessing other people. And John the Baptist is in this moment of questioning. Is there room for doubt and questions on the journey of faith? And John the Baptist sends a message. He gets his disciples to come right up against the prison bars. They're on the other side. They're free. He's in prison. He says, can you go talk to Jesus? I got a question for him. Because I'm hearing about a lot of great things. I got a question for him. And the question is this in verse 3. Are you the Messiah? Now hold on. Why is he asking if Jesus is the Messiah when in Matthew chapter three, he declared he's the lamb of God. Because it's easy to believe in God when things are going your way. It's easy to have faith when your business is prospering, when your marriage looks perfect, when you're having children and not having miscarriages, when your dad gets healed. It's easy to have faith when everything seems to be lining up. But I would say that real faith begins where understanding ends. Real faith begins when it doesn't make sense to you. When you're going, hold up. Why aren't things going the way I expected them to go? My experiences aren't lining up with my expectations. What do you do? And John says, are you the Messiah? Or should we keep looking for someone else? I think he was really saying, 
um, are you going to get me out of this? <laughs> are you going to leave me in here? By the way, John the Baptist, his life ends in martyrdom. Herod, who actually liked John's preaching, was manipulated by his wife's daughter to cut off John's head. It's a very sad story to hear. And I think John knew something was coming. He knew his death was imminent. By the way, the Bible says it is appointed unto all of us to die. So if, if you're mad because someone died in your life, it's going to happen. Our goal is not to become immortal here on this earth. Like the dream is not to live in America for 500 years and build our American kingdom as if this is heaven. This is not, my friends. We're living for a greater dream. The kingdom dream is way better than the American dream. And living another extra hundred years and beating a sickness does not lead to greater like happiness or joy. Because at some point, we're all going to face death. The bigger question, the bigger victory is not beating death for another 10 years here on this earth. The bigger victory is when you die, where you spend eternity. And when you know Jesus and when you've given your heart to him, there is victory no matter what. Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so John, he's, he's saying, is, is this how it ends? Are you the Messiah or should we be waiting for someone else? And Jesus says, go back to John and tell him what you've heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life. In other words, scroll through Instagram. Everyone's life looks awesome. Everything's going good. And then he says this, the good news is being preached to the poor and tell him God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. Your version New King James Version would say, and blessed are those who are not offended because of me. I would say one of the biggest reasons people walk away from God, the Bible, and the church is because of offense. They're offended at the church or they're offended at God. They're offended at God. And Jesus was saying, blessed are those whose faith is not offended because of me. Blessed are those who don't walk away when it gets tough. Jesus never promised us a suffering-free life, a pain-free life, but he did promise to be our shelter in the storm, our savior in the midst of our suffering, our deliverer, and our strong tower, our firm foundation. So if you're dealing with doubt, number one, you're not alone. You're not alone. I dealt with doubt. I sometimes still deal with some doubt, especially when I'm not spending enough time in prayer and in the word of God and in healthy community. But you're not alone if you're dealing with doubt. You are not alone. Did you know many characters in the Bible faced doubts while they were following Jesus, while they were obeying God? Moses dealt with doubt. He questioned God. Gideon dealt with doubt. He questioned God. Esther dealt with doubt. She questioned whether God could use her or whether the plan was actually going to come to pass the way that Mordecai was telling her it would. David dealt with doubt. Half of the Psalms is David chronicling and journaling his doubts, wondering, God, are you going to come through? God, where are you? I feel deserted. I feel abandoned. I mean, so many people dealt with doubt. Peter dealt with doubt. Thomas dealt with doubt. He said, I won't believe unless I see you with my eyes and touch you with my hands. And so number one, you're not alone. Not just because the Bible characters dealt with doubt, but even some of the great Christian leaders that you and I would remember have dealt with doubt. C.S. Lewis has written a lot about faith, but he wrestled with his faith after becoming a Christian. He was an atheist before he became a Christian, but once he became a Christian, he would wrestle 
with these feelings of doubt. And he would say things like, my moods are always changing. C.S. Lewis was a moody guy. How many of y'all know some moody people? (laughs) And he would say, when my moods are off, I cannot feel like I'm a sound Christian. In other words, he would wake up and some days he would feel so discouraged and he wouldn't want to go to church and he wouldn't want to read his Bible. But he would say this, while he was writing some of the great books, like the Chronicles of Narnia, while he was writing books about the love and the faith of God, he would say, I've chosen to put my faith not in my moods, not in my feelings, but in the truth of God's word. He would come back to it. Mother Teresa was one who dealt with doubt. She was remembered for her selfless service to the poor and to the sick, But a book of letters that came out after she died revealed the journals that she wrote where she struggled with doubt. And she wrote these words. Darkness is such that I really do not see. Neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul feels blank. There is no God in me. When the pain of longing is so great, I long and long for God. And the torture and the pain I can't explain. She frequently asked her sisters to privately pray for her. And she would say, I feel empty. I feel like a hypocrite. People think that I am this great woman of compassion, but my thoughts and my feelings constantly conflict within me. See, I think sometimes we think that all these characters were flawless, were perfect, never dealt with doubt, but you need to know you're not alone if you struggle sometimes with doubt. Martin Luther, who led the Protestant Reformation, oftentimes would deal and struggle with questions and doubts. He wrote this in his journal. For more than a week, I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy of God. Here, Martin Luther, he was struggling with his relationship with God. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of our time, he was a master at communicating deep truths of Scripture, but also engaging his audience by relating with their struggles. And he said this, I think when a man says, I have, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. It is quite time for us to begin to say, oh, you poor soul, I am afraid that you are not on the road at all. For if you were, you would see so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ, more than you deserve, that you would be so much ashamed of yourself as even to say, it is too good to be true. And then Charles Spurgeon wrote this, and I thought this was really good. By the way, today, I'm not going to do a whole bunch of theatrics and illustrations. I'm going to bring you biblical literacy and absolute truth and help give you some ways to deal with your own doubt. Are you guys cool that we don't, that we don't do, you know, like today? And I've been strongly convicted because of conversations I've had with close friends, pastors, songwriters, leaders. I've been thinking, you know, for me, the reason why I succumbed to so much doubt and questioning in college It's not because my parents didn't teach apologetics to me. It's not because they didn't teach me biblical literacy. It's that I tuned out those messages. I only listened when there was a drama on stage, when there was a video to go with the message. I was so like in this youth group, candy, give me some fun stuff, hunger, appetite, spiritual diet, that I didn't know how to listen when the message was speaking so much truth to build up my faith. And so when I got hit with questions by professors or friends who said, what's this speaking in tongue stuff? What's these gifts of the spirit? And people who came from different denominations than me and people who didn't believe in what I believed in and people who made fun of what I believed in and people who questioned what I believed in, I didn't know how to answer. And so I had to go and search deep for these truths. 
And so today is one of those days where I'm going to give you some tools, not just for your faith, but how to talk to other people about what they're dealing with in their doubt. It's Charles Spurgeon, he wrote this, and I thought it was really good. He said, the strong are not always vigorous, and the wise are not always ready. The brave are not always courageous, and the joyous are not always happy. The life of Martin Luther would suffice to give a thousand instances that he was by no means of the weaker sort. But his very deathbed was not free from temptations as he sobbed himself into his last sleep like a great wearied child. In other words, all of us at times will deal with doubt and questions and temptations and struggles. And he said this, the lesson of wisdom is be not dismayed by the troubles in your soul. Cast not away your confidence in God, for it hath great recompense of reward. Even if the enemy's foot be on your neck, expect to rise amid and overthrow him. Cast the burden of the present along with the sin of the past and the fear of the future upon the Lord your God who forsaketh not his saints. So he came back to this place of, yes, we're going to deal with doubt, but bring your doubt back to God because God can handle your doubts. So number one, you're not alone in your doubt. Number two, this is an opportunity to build your faith. This is an opportunity to strengthen your faith. We need organic, personally cultivated relationships with God. Dear church, let us stop riding off the coattails of pastors, preachers, songwriters, and parents to find our faith. We need personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and we need personal conviction. Otherwise, you're going to get out into the real world, and you're going to face real problems and real issues, and your prayers don't get answered all the time. Sorry, the Dallas Cowboys don't always win their games. The OU Sooners have some losses. And sometimes things don't go your way. And if you don't have a personal, organic relationship with God that's birthed from your own pursuit of of believing in Jesus, then it's going to be really hard to stay. And then 20 years of walking away from God and the church, you end up like Solomon, confused, depressed, isolated, wondering what happened. Why was I mad? Why was I offended? It's because we didn't take the time to do the hard work that takes hard work to truly understand and build up a firm foundation of faith. So number two, if you're dealing with doubt, don't run from it, don't sweep it under the rug, don't not talk about it. We need to talk about it in community, in relationship with other people and the right people. Don't talk about doubts with a bunch of other doubters and skeptics. Talk about it with people who have a mature faith that can help you with it. But number three, God is not mad at you for your doubt. And he does not reject you because of your doubt. And neither will we here at Victory. At Victory, there is space for you to bring your questions and your doubts. Whether it's in a connect group, in men's discipleship, women's discipleship, here in the church to say, Paul, I want to believe. Help me in my unbelief. I want to understand, but it's so hard for me. I'm dealing with so many questions. And like the prodigal son's father, he didn't force the son to stay in the house. But he gave him the money and he said, take your time. I'll be waiting for you on the porch when you're ready to come back. And he welcomed him with open arms. But the one guy who didn't come into the party was the older brother who was mad at the younger brother who wasted much of the money of the father and the time. 
Let us not be the older brother that's mad at those who are going through their own doubts and questions and on their pursuit to understand God. Let us be like the father that says, I will love you even in your doubts. I will not reject you and I will welcome you with open arms just like the father God does to us. Why is this important? Because how you view God and how you view how God handles doubt will determine how you live your life. I was talking with someone recently who said, I grew up in a very legalistic culture where I was spanked for every single menial little thing. Like, if I was five seconds late, I was spanked. If I said something I shouldn't have said, I was spanked for every single thing. If I didn't include my brother, I was spanked, I was spanked, I was spanked, I was spanked, 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 spanked. So he said, as I got older, I was so afraid to be punished for every little thing I did. So I got really good at following the rules in the eyes of the church. I got really good at showing up to church, wearing Sunday's best. People would ask me, how you doing? Super, naturally, perfect, awesome, all is well. Glory to God, praise be to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But secretly, I was struggling with addictions to lust, lying, cheating, hypocrisy. And because I was so afraid to be honest, because in my culture, honesty led to a whole lot of punishment. So this gave no room to honesty for me. So I lived a very good life in the eyes of the church, but secretly, I hated the people that were around me. Secretly, I was struggling with sin and pain. And the picture I had of God was that he was holding my hand on this side, but he had a baseball bat on the other hand. And the second I slipped up, the second I looked at something I shouldn't, he was gonna whack me over the head. And so I was ready to walk away from everything because that didn't sound like a joyous life to me. Why is it important for us to look at how we view God and how view God, how God views doubts and questions? Because it will determine the way you parent your children. It will determine the way you love your husband or your wife. It will determine how, you, how long you even stay in church or if you keep following Jesus. Like I'm all for the sermons that are pumping you up and exciting and you know, let's go march around the walls of Jericho. But we need biblical literacy. Like we need truth, my friends. And I know it may not be your favorite diet today. I'm bringing you some broccoli and I'm bringing you some mashed potatoes and steak (laughs) and it may not be candy today but how do we deal with our doubts how do we deal with our questions doubt is going to come but it's how we deal with it that matters there was a post from a famous singer songwriter on instagram called what in god's name is happening in christianity And I felt it was so powerful, I wanted to share it with you today. Because he was responding to what's going on right now in society with people who are announcing they're walking away from faith. So let's just read this together. He says, okay, I'm saying it because it's too important not to. What is happening in Christianity? More and more of our outspoken leaders or influencers who were once faces of the faith are falling away. And at the same time, they're being very vocal and bold about it. Shockingly, they still want to influence others as they announce that they are leaving the faith. First, I never judge people who are outside of my faith. Even if they hate religion or Christianity, I have many friends who disagree with my religion. This note is for people within Christianity. My conclusion for the church, 
all of us Christians, we must stop making worship leaders and thought leaders the most influential people in Christendom. Now, I preached about this last week, that we live in a celebrity culture, American Idol, The Voice, and so we exalt and lift up voices that we see in the church as if they've got, they've got it all figured out and we should just follow whatever they think. The problem is, is once they walk away, we start following them as well in that. This is why we can't lift up any celebrity except Jesus Christ. Don't lift me up. Don't lift another preacher on this stage up. Don't lift a worship leader up. Because listen, y'all, we are human, but there is a father in heaven whose word you can trust. It is true and it is unshakable. We've got generations that followed certain authors. I mean, even six years ago, a guy who wrote a book who was basically like, God is love and there is no hell. And now thousands of people have followed this guy. Not just thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Because they lifted up his voice over God's voice. So here he's saying, please, let's stop doing this. We now have a church culture that learns who God is from singing modern praise songs rather than from the teachings of the word. We singers and musicians are good at communicating emotion and feeling. However, we are not always the best people to write solid Bible truth and doctrine. Sometimes we are too young, too ignorant of Scripture, too unaware, or too unconcerned about the purity of Scripture and the holiness of the God that we are singing to. We must teach truth to recent disavowed Christian church leaders. First of all, I am stunned that the seemingly most important thing for these leaders who have lost their faith is to make such a bold new stance. Basically saying, I've been living and preaching boldly something for 20 years and led generations of people with my teachings and now I no longer believe it. Therefore, I'm going to boldly and loudly tell people it was all wrong while I boldly and loudly lead people into my next truth. I'm perplexed. Why be so eager to continue leading people when you clearly don't know where you're going? When I was reading this, I'm like crying and I'm shouting. I'm like, yes! Like, what are we doing? We have modern day Solomons. And not Solomon on the other side of concluding what life is all about, but Solomon in the middle of his doubt, publicly saying, meaningless, vanity, do whatever you want, have sex with whoever you want, no rules, no restrictions. And it's like, you are leading a nation away from God. Why are you publicly inviting people on it? You have no clue. I'm very, I'm very passionate about this, as you can see. So he says this. He says, second, I hear this from several of the disavowed. By the way, if you're dealing with doubt, there's room for it. But let me just encourage you. Don't exalt your doubt above God's word. Like deal with doubt, but keep coming back to scripture. You say, but Paul, I kind of want to bring it, you know, over here and see what Oprah says about it and see what Buddha says about it and see what Islam says about it and see what this president says about it. I'm sorry, but none of them are your savior. President Trump is not the savior. Jesus Christ is the savior. Oprah Winfrey is not the savior. Jesus Christ is the savior. So, so come back to an absolute truth foundation. And he says, second, I hear from several of the disavowed. No one talks about the real stuff. Oh, dear church. We're about to talk about this. I just read today in a renowned worship leader statement, how could a God of love send people to hell? No one talks about the real stuff as if he's the first person to ask this question. 
Brother, you are not that unique. The church has wrestled with this for 1,500 years. Literally, everybody talks about it. Children talk about it in Sunday school. There's like a billion books written on the topic. Just because you don't get the answer you want doesn't mean that we are unwilling to wrestle with it. And church, let's wrestle with the hard topics. Let's wrestle with it. You know what? I'm like a secret fan of Rabbi Zacharias. Like, I love apologetics, but sometimes I feel unqualified to talk about it. But I felt so compelled to start this series. I'm like, I know I'm a little David, and that's a big Goliath, but I'm going to go for it, and I'm going to preach some absolute truth during this series, and I'm going to build some biblical literacy into our church. And it may not be the most exciting, wham, bam, become the best you series, but it's going to be... Believe in the best God series and put your faith not in your talents or your skills or how you pay the bills, but put your faith in a God who's bigger than you and greater than your intellect and greater than your doubts and greater than your abilities. And he says, we wrestle with scripture. I want the keys to come out. We wrestle with scripture. Guys, we gotta wrestle with this. Like God doesn't want us just accepting anything and everything that comes our way. Blind faith. He wants us to spend time wrestling, like care about your faith so that when you hear a preacher get up and say something, you sit down with your family and you say, hey, let's have dinner tonight. And instead of talking about OU Sooners or the latest Netflix series we all watch or what movie's coming out this weekend, what if we just spend an hour to talk about where we stand on this? Because 20 years from now, those little things that you're, dismissing or that you don't have time for because Netflix is more important or football or food or the new movie out. Like it's shaping how you parent, how you live, how you treat each other. And we've got to wrestle. I love what he says here. He says, we wrestle with scripture until we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. So the ultimate goal is to become more like Jesus. Why are people walking away from faith? I think there's multiple reasons. Timothy Keller gives three. Intellectual, personal, and social. But I also think there's hurt towards God, hurt towards the church. And then there's moral relativism where people are basically saying, question everything. We have a generation where teachers and schools and everybody's trying to get you to question everything, burn everything to the ground and see what remains. The problem is when you question everything, you end up like Solomon, you end up very confused. At some point, you have to have faith to believe. It takes more courage to believe in what you can't see. Did you know the early church for hundreds of years, they were comfortable with the tension of not having all their questions answered. They would sit and they would talk about questions and they would say, we accept the tension. We accept that this is a dark area that we don't have the understanding on. Who can understand the thoughts of God? His thoughts are higher than ours. His ways are deeper than ours. If you could reason and logic every single thing, it wouldn't be faith at all. You would eliminate the need for faith. It would just be an intellectual thing. It, it wouldn't even be belief. Real belief, real faith is trusting what you don't understand. It's choosing to trust when life doesn't make sense. So he says, we wrestle with scripture until we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And lastly, and most shocking in my opinion, he says, as these influencers disavow their faith, they always end their statements with their new insight, new truth, that is basically a regurgitation of Jesus's words. It's truly bizarre and ironic. They'll say, I'm disavowing my faith, but remember, love people, be generous, forgive others. 
Um, why? That is actually not human nature. No child is born saying, I just want to love others before loving myself. I want to turn the other cheek. I want to give my money away to those that are in need. Those are Bible principles taught by a prophet, priest, king of kings who wants us to live by a higher standard, which is not an earthly standard, but rather the kingdom of God standard. Therefore, if Jesus is not the truth, like if Jesus is not the truth, what is? And by preaching Jesus' teachings, you are endorsing the words of a madman, a lunatic who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So why then would a disavowed Christian leader promote that generosity is good? How would we know what is good without Jesus' teachings? Man, I want to start praying in tongues right now. This is so good. Y'all, our moral compass is on the line right now. It's been on the line for a long time, but right now there's a generation that's about to dismiss the entire Bible thinking they are the woke church. And what's gonna happen to their kids and their kids' kids? Like we've got to contend for the faith. Dear church, Paul wrote in Corinthians, dear church, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy that you would stop prostituting yourselves to all these celebrity voices and accepting anything and everything that fits your spiritual fast food diet, but that you would come back to an absolute truth that the words of Jesus stop falling for every little riddle and lie that's out there. Just because it rhymes doesn't mean it is theologically correct. Like we are, we are living in the Instagram, Twitter generation where we are, we are feeding ourselves 30 second bites and, and that's our food for the day spiritually. This little 45 second preaching clips. All right, I'm good for the day. What if that 45 second preaching clip wasn't even from the Bible? What if it was just an opinion about how to handle things? We gotta come back to the word of God. And he said, I'm amazed that so many Christians want the benefits of the kingdom of God, but with the caveat that they themselves will be the king. It is time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of the word of God and to value the teaching of the word. We need to value truth over feeling, truth over emotion. And what we are seeing now is the result of the church raising up influencers who did not supremely value truth, who have led and influenced a generation. And now those disavowed leaders are proudly still leading and influencing boldly away from the truth. Further and further, they are sinking into the sea all the while shouting, this time I found the truth, follow me. Brothers and sisters in the faith, all around the world, pastors, teachers, worship leaders, influencers, I implore you, dear church, please, please, in your search for relevancy for the gospel, let us not find creative ways to shape God's word into the image of our culture by stifling inconvenient truths, but rather let us hold on even tighter to the anchor of the living word of God, for he changes not. Yes, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever, church. It's time we come back. My friend posted on Instagram a thought about the deconstruction movement, and all of a sudden, all these responses started coming in. I think if we have that, I just want to show you because it was very interesting to me. He said, this is largely a movement born out of a spirit of offense and disappointment. It perpetuates a victim mentality and rejects all biblical absolutes. People started responding to it. 
They said, I was almost sucked into the abyss of this new age pagan theology. It took me right to the edge of losing my faith until I rediscovered when one of my friends got me involved in an old school style, but Bible study. In other words, people are coming back to the truth of God's word. Look at the next one here. Um, they said, I could not agree more. I grew up in the epicenter of extreme legalism and scripture being used to oppress and abuse, but rather than causing me to turn away from true faith, it made me hungry and desperate for the real thing. And I found it in a relationship with the Holy Spirit. I feel like those who are constructing their faith are really just hungry for more of God, but they don't realize that's what it is. Next one, go to the next one. One of the most terrible things about this movement is they don't seem to know how to reconstruct. By the way, we need reconstruction, not deconstruct. We need to get rid of anything that's like not from scripture. There are some things that maybe you grew up with that was legalism or was nationalism or, or just was a, a view on certain groups of people that wasn't even from the word of God, but you learned it from people that went to church. You got to come back to the word of God. What lines up with who Jesus is and what he teaches us in scripture? Just because there's things in this Bible uh, of people doing things doesn't mean God condoned every single decision that people made. So coming back to what does God want from us? The fruits of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. So go, I wanna show you a couple more of these. Is it okay? I feel like I have 30 pages of notes and I'm like on page four. Let me, let me wrap this up. Go, go to the next one, go to the next one. Um, this one was really good. My husband was really getting, getting into the deconstruction movement when his dad passed away. We pastor a church and he started walking a very fine line that God had me lovingly call him out. By the way, if you are married to someone who's dealing with doubt or walking away from God in the faith, one of the best things you can do is speak truth in love, keep praying for them, stay with them. Stay. The Bible teaches that when, when an unbelieving husband is married to a believing wife, you can actually bring them into salvation through your prayers, through your good works, through your model of an example of following after Jesus. Like I had this, I had this thought when I was younger, I used to have this fear, especially when we went camping in certain places where there was an outhouse and I'd walk into the, the outhouse and he opened the door and this toilet seat, you look down, it was a 15 foot drop into a pond down there full of stuff. You know what I'm talking about? The outhouses, right? So I always had this fear. What if I fall through the hole? How am I gonna get out of there? And is my dad gonna even wanna come down there to get me? <gasps> and now that I'm a dad, if one of my boys fell down there, I'm like, am I the kind of dad that would crawl down in that crud? And I know I would, I know I would, because I love my kids so much. And the stuff that they get into, I would do anything to rappel down in there, jump down in there. I'd get it all over me just to get them out of that. And can I tell you that that same love exists in Father God. He's not a mad God, he's not a bad God. He's not the author of the pain that you've experienced. Man, this whole thing, it needs like a series. We need to have like a three hour night where we teach apologetics and Bible literacy to young and old. And we just gather. And I wanna have Rabbi Zacharias come. I, I wanna have, cause I really feel like we're in a season right now as a church that we can't keep playing church. And we can't just do the Sunday thing and then go home and have no conversations about faith. We've got to wrestle with this until we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. But God is willing to pull you out of whatever CR, whatever junk you're in, trying to keep this PG for all the little kids that are in the room. And so watch, I want to go back to the next one here. He says, um, the wife says, 
When I talked to him about what he was walking through, he let me know that he didn't feel like he was allowed to ask questions. I pray that no one feels that in this church. If you have questions, you could talk to us about it. There's room here if you're going through your doubts. And I told him, I wanted him to ask me all the questions, but that he needed to be looking for answers. That's important. Don't exalt your questions over the truth of God's word. And look for answers from people who have them. One of the problems with the deconstruction thing that's going on and doubt and people who are like, well, I'm, I just no longer believe in this or believe in that, they're all getting together. We need to pair people up who are in doubt with people who are strong in their faith. Get in the right healthy community. So not from the same people who have the same questions. God had me tell him that for every question he had, he needed to read a scripture to search out the answer, to listen to podcasts. You can't seek answers to doubt from people who are doubting. And, and there's, I, I literally screenshotted like 40 of these. There's just so many stories of people who came out of that deception and they came back to truth. So here's what happened for me. This one Sunday, I'm at church and my dad's preaching. I'm 19 years old. We're at the Maybe Center. How many of y'all remember the Maybe Center days? It was 11 a.m. service. I'm a freshman in college. I want to leave ORU. I want to drop out. I actually said this to my brother. I said, I'm going to move down to Mexico and I'm going to become a drug cartel leader and I'm going to be the craziest rebel ever because I'm done with this. And John was like, you sound crazy. And I was like, I don't care. I just don't know anything anymore. And I'm questioning everything. And I was so confused and I was hurt. And I was questioning miracles and God and faith and all of it. My dad was preaching on one side of the curtain because we rented out half the maybe center. So on one side of the curtain, there was thousands of people listening to my dad. On the other side of the curtain, it was pitch black, dark. If you were to walk back there, you remember there was no lights on back there and I was sitting in the dark. There's an allegorical picture to this that I was sitting in my own confusion. I wasn't in the light, I was in the dark. I was doubtful, I was exalting my doubts instead of exalting the word of God. And my brother comes back there and he says, what are you doing back here? I'm sitting in, in row three, back in the, in the darkness behind the curtain. I can see the screens. On the back side of the screens, I could see what my dad was saying. I said, John, I just can't sit out there. I don't believe it. I don't, I don't trust it. I don't know it. John, I just, I'm done. And John said, Paul, don't you remember when we were little and we went through a house fire and we should have died? They showed up with body bags, but we lived. I said, yeah, but what about other people who died in house fires? He said, Paul, don't you remember when we went to Russia and you saw thousands of people coming down to the altar when dad got up and preached? I said, yeah, but what about the people in Russia who died? And, and what about what Hitler did? And I, you know, I had all these questions about the history. And, and what about this and the millions of Jews that were killed? And I, I'm asking all of these questions. And John says, listen, I don't have an answer for every single question, but I will tell you this. It is greater to live with faith in God than to live with questions your whole life, never trusting anything or anyone. It's only gonna lead you into further confusion and further anger and depression and bitterness. And he said, Paul, you remember when you laid hands on that woman when you were 16 and she was in Mexico and we all went on a mission trip and you prayed, there was this woman who was 70 years old and I remember praying for her and her eyes opened up. She had been blind her entire life and she got her sight back in that moment. He said, was that God? What was that? I said, I, I, I believe it was God. John, I wanna believe. This is what Thomas said. I wanna believe, but help me in my unbelief. I wanna believe. Help me in my unbelief. 
And I want to give you just a few last thoughts here. Because number one, faith begins where understanding ends. Faith begins where understanding ends. If you're dealing with doubt, know this, that faith really begins where understanding ends. Number two, if we can throw that up, relationship is greater than reasoning. What my brother was telling me was, Paul, it's greater to live with a relationship with Jesus. By the way, you could come to victory. You could belong before you believe. We say this at Growth Track. I want to say this here. You can belong. We're not carting you at the door like, do you believe everything Paul believes up there? <laughs> it's okay if we have different opinions, but just know I'm going to keep preaching the word of God. But you could belong here. You could be a part of this community even if you don't behave. You could belong before you behave. There's some places where it's like, you better clean up before you come into church. Come as you are. Come with all of the junk you're in and watch what God will do. Relationship is greater than rules and reasoning. And when you're in a relationship with Jesus, that's when the real change begins. Embrace a real relationship with Jesus and build on that firm foundation. I'm almost done. But my brother began to talk to me and he said, Paul, what if you just chose to believe, no matter what you see from here on, that God is real and that he loves you and you can have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ? I said, I want to. He said, let's pray. My brother led me into that prayer. I came back into faith and my faith got stronger. It got deeper. I was no longer riding off the coattails. My faith was not in Billy Joe Doherty. It was in Jesus Christ. And little did I know that five years after this moment, I would face a, another crisis when my father passed away and I needed to lean on a firm foundation that my faith was not in getting everything to go my way or getting everybody to live a little bit longer or getting everybody to, to experience everything that I want for them. But my faith was in Jesus Christ, that he's with me and he's the same yesterday, today and forever. And he'll never leave me nor forsake me. And my eternity is with him. And my faith is not in me and it's not in you and it's not in that, but it's in him on Christ. Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And number three, something happened that day when I began to pray. Pray for faith, not for proof. That was what my prayer became. Lord, give me greater faith, even if I don't see all the proof. We believe in the wind, but we can't see it. We see the effects of it. Pray for faith. If you're dealing with doubt, pray for, just say, God, give me faith. That's what Martin Luther would pray. That's what, that's what Jonathan, that's what uh, Charles Spurgeon would pray. Mother Teresa they would just pray, Lord, give me faith. Peter would, Lord, give me faith. Give me faith, even when I don't see. No matter how this turns out, give me faith. Number four, number four, wrestle within a healthy community. Don't do this in isolation. If you're dealing with doubt, bring it into this and talk with each other. Talk with me, talk with Mark, talk with anyone in this church and talk with people that are full of faith. If you, if you start talking to someone and they're like, ah, uh, yeah, I'm doubting that too. Let's all doubt together. Find someone else to talk to about it. You can still be friends with them, love them, but talk to someone who's like, let me help you, my friend. Let me help you. Wrestle it within a healthy community. Number five, deep faith requires deep surrender. If you wanna have a deeper faith, you're gonna have to bring a, all of the hurts, all the wounds, all the baggage. You're gonna have to bring it to God. In, in the movie Case for Christ, Lee Strobel, he was trying to logic away Jesus with intellect. And he, he wanted to disprove the resurrection. He wanted to disprove. But it was in this moment where he began to see that science and intellect, all of it was pointing to the truth. It's a great movie. You should watch it. 
And then there was other people that I watched who were trying to walk away from God because of social reasons, hurt reasons. The church was hypocrites to them in one moment. People let them down. Pastors let them down. Things that happened that are pushing them away. But all of the stories where people came back to a place of sound mind and love and peace and fruitfulness in their life, it all came to a point of surrender. So whether you need to surrender some doubts from an intellectual standpoint, or whether you need to surrender some hurts from what church people have said or done, or whether you need to surrender some of your own personal exaltation of what you think is best, right? Self, ex, ex, uh, self um, actualization, thinking that this is all about me as, as long as I become the best me and I'll lift up my ideas. Some of us need to surrender the pride and come under the submission of God. I want you to stand your feet all over this place. Thank you for staying a little bit longer today. But I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes all over this room. And if you're here right now and doubt has been trying to come into your mind or your heart, all over this room, no one looking around, this is between you and God, but if doubt has been trying to mess with you in some way and you're on a journey right now, you wanna believe, but you're saying, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Maybe you've walked through a miscarriage. Maybe you've walked through a painful loss of a family member. Maybe you've walked through recently through a divorce. Maybe you're going through something and you're saying, God, I need your help to believe and trust that you're a good father, that you love me. He wants to give you that faith. He wants to give you that reassurance of salvation. He wants to strengthen your heart. God cares more about your soul than he does your image. God cares more about your inside than how you look on the outside. He doesn't care about the car you drive, the house you live in, the money that's in your bank. He cares about your soul because when the soul prospers, everything else will flourish. And maybe you're here right now and you say, I, I look like I've got it all together, but inwardly I'm dealing with a lot of hurts and wounds and shame and guilt and questions. And I, I don't know what to do with it. I'm gonna tell you right now, cast it on the Lord. Bring it to God. Bring the questions, the doubts, the fears, the worries, the shame, the guilt, the hurt, the anger, the pride, and say, Lord, I'm choosing to trust in you. And I'm gonna ask us all to say this prayer. Say, Jesus, I surrender. I'm all yours. I repent of sin. I receive your forgiveness. Help me to believe. Lord, I choose to trust in you and lean not to my own understanding. I acknowledge you as the way, the truth, and the life. I'm all yours, God. I choose to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen and amen. Come on, give God praise today.